Please open your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 12. And as you turn there, it is a a joy and a delight to return after two weeks' absence. I'm so thankful for how the Lord has amply supplied our body with gifted, um, serving individuals. I'm thankful for Dave Lample two weeks ago. He did a marvelous job. And I'm thankful for the use of our technology that allowed us to uh, record last week's message. It was weird preaching to an empty room. I don't know if it was weird for you having me on the screen, but it was probably weird all around, but God is, God gives grace. It's great to be here. My plan for the next three gatherings today, our Good Friday service and our Resurrection Sunday service, is to look at the passion of our Lord from the Gospel of John. Each of the Gospel writers draws his own emphasis to the events. Um, they, they harmonize perfectly, but they each draw attention to different things. If, if you think of it like a screenplay of a, of a movie, the camera slows, zooms in. We get a wide-angle shot. For, for instance, if you remember in our four-and-a-half-year study through Luke's gospel, Luke focuses on the conflicts in the temple day after day in the week prior to the crucifixion. John's gospel, we have the triumphal entry in chapter 12, we have some Greeks asking about Jesus, his final declaration, and then we, we teleport to the night before the crucifixion. Everything else from 13 to 17 is the, the, light, the night of the Last Supper. And so John has little concern for the events of the week compared to, say, Luke. And so they have different emphases. And yet all four Gospels contain the account of Jesus' entry into Jerusalem, heralded as the king of the Jews, king of Israel, with palm branches. In fact, John's gospel, I think, is the only gospel that makes it clear is palm branches. And so we're going to look at that this morning and pray that God would give us eyes to see and ears to hear and insight into what this means. Now we're focusing primarily on verses 12 through 19, but I'd like to begin actually in verse 1. We'll read now. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they were having a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment from, made from pure nard, anointed the feet of Jesus, and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, Leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well. Because on account of him, many of the Jews are going away and believing in Jesus. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it was written. 
Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard that he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Let's pray. Lord God, we marvel in awe at our Savior, simultaneously fearless and bold, meek and mild. And we pray that you would now give us eyes to see, that we would understand this rightly, that our faith would be strengthened, that our worship would be encouraged, that our hearts would overflow with joy and admiration and wonder and awe. The Lord Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. So I propose that we look at the triumphal entry or Palm Sunday. If you've looked at the chronology, some have suggested it may actually be Palm Monday. It doesn't quite have the same ring to it, but you you could take it both ways depending on how you're counting days. Uh, And I started in chapter 12, verse 1, to set the context six days before the Passover. It gives us our timetable. This is the Passover where Jesus will be crucified. So when our text then begins in verse 12, the next day... It's either Sunday or Monday, depending on how you're counting. We're going to look at this, the dramatic event, but you may have noticed that in the text itself, two scriptures are quoted. And the notion of the fulfillment that the disciples later realized, later picked up on, is, is, is highlighted. So we're going to look at that separately. We're going to look at the dramatic event, the fulfillment of scripture, and then the various Responses. I think there are four responses to this that John gives us here. And that's, that's where we're going. The dramatic event itself, fulfillment of scripture, and the various responses. So verse 12 begins the next day. And if you look back to verse 1, you'll see that if verse 1 was six days before the Passover, that puts us then at five days before the Passover. That's the timetable. And remember, John is going to jump from here to the end, once he gets to the end of chapter 12, we're at the upper room. We're at the Last Supper. Even though John doesn't actually record the Last Supper, he records the discussion that took place in and around it. So the next day, five days before the Passover, two points of context are key here. A large crowd is gathering. A large crowd is gathering. We're given for at least three reasons. One, it's the Jews' feast of um, Passover, which every able-bodied Jewish man, by the law, in, in the book of Deuteronomy, is required to come to Jerusalem. You can't celebrate the Passover just anywhere. You've got to go to the place, that's what Deuteronomy says, that the Lord your God chooses. And most of those men are going to bring their family or portions of their family. Also, Jesus himself is drawing crowds. And additionally, the miracle of the raising of Lazarus is drawing crowds. People are coming to see Jesus, people are coming to see Lazarus, and people are coming just because this is Jerusalem and this is the Passover. So there's a large crowd present. But also note something else. The the chief priests have made a decision. They've decided not only to kill Jesus, 
but also Lazarus, which having just recently been raised from the dead has got to really stink to find out that the chief priests. Now, the chief priests, they control the temple. They're probably connected to the Sadducees, the temple worship, the chief priests. They're going to be in contrast to the Pharisees at the end of our passage. So we're seeing Jesus' enemies lock into deadly focus here. In verse, um, where, where does it tell us? That the, yeah, verse 10. The chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well. And the as well makes it clear they're planning to kill Jesus too. And at the end of our passage, the, uh, the Pharisees lock together as well. And we know that when the trial comes for Jesus, Jesus' enemies... And the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the priests lock together. The enemy of my enemy is my friend, and they conspire to put him to death. So that's the backdrop that John gives us. This crowd is here for a number of reasons, and it's quite large. The priests, they've settled their intent. They're going to, they're going to kill Jesus, have him put to death, and Lazarus. Now let's take a look at what the crowd did. What the crowd did. Verse 12, the next day a large crowd had come out to the feast, heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him crying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. So the crowd acts spontaneously. As far as we can tell, they hear the news of Jesus coming and they take palm branches and they go out to meet him. Now, palm branches actually are associated with the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Booths, where you'd go and make a a shelter outside of your house, and you'd live there for a week to remember that you were sojourners as well. And it actually mentions in Leviticus 23.20 that you're going to probably use things like palm branches. So we're not sure why they bring out palm branches, most likely just because they're plentiful. Listen to this little note in 2 Chronicles 28.15. They brought them to their kinsfolk at Jericho, the city of palm trees. I mean, there's a road going from Jerusalem down to Jericho. So this is a region in Israel where palm trees are plentiful. Not only that, but when Solomon built his temple, palm trees figure um, prominently in the depictions, in the, in the engravings. It's, it's associated with the kingship, with the throne, with worship, And they're plentiful and they're available. It's a way for them to do homage to our Lord. They're heralding him. They're celebrating. More important than the branches themselves, though, is what comes out of their mouth. They're citing scripture. Okay? They cry out, and your blank here is, save now. Save now. That's what Hosanna literally means. Save us now. And I want to pause here and suggest to you that there is deep Irony going on in this event. Deep, dramatic irony. This crowd, by and large, is going to speak and act far better than it knows. Far, far better than it knows. There's irony on many levels taking place here. And Jesus is in the center of it all. So they they cry out, Hosanna, or save now. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. They they cite Psalm 118, and then they add their own little bit at the end, even the king of Israel. They have identified, this crowd has identified Jesus as Israel's king. And this is a legitimate messianic title. Nathan, back in chapter 1, 
When he meets Jesus, no, no, sorry, not Nathan. Nathaniel answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. But that title, king of Israel, could become rather central for the trial and the crucifixion. If you remember what they affix, what Pilate affixes at the top of the cross, is this is the king of the Jews. So here this title is now being lifted up by the masses. That, that's significant. That's significant that this large, large crowd is publicly calling him the king of Israel. That's going to be one of the, um, the, or the primary way that the Jews, the Pharisees, the priests are going to try to entrap Jesus. We'll see a little bit later how Jesus and Pilate talk about this. This is a concern for Rome. They can't be putting up with competing rulers. Okay? So we're going to look at Psalm 119, 118, sorry, when we get down to our next point. But that's what the crowd does. They come out in mass, heralding Jesus, lauding him, giving him honor. And they, they, they ascribe the text of Psalm 118 to him, and then they add their own interpretation of it. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. That's who we understand you to be, the King of Israel. And that looks really good. I don't think it's as good as it looks, but it looks really good. And part of what I mean by the dramatic irony is this. If you did not know the story of our Lord's death, burial, and resurrection, you might be tempted to think, this is it. They get it. He wins. He's won over the masses. He's won over the crowds. His enemies are frustrated. He's going to triumph. Just five days, he'll be crucified. That's one of the ironies, one of the turnarounds here. So that's what the crowd did. What did Jesus do? Verse 14, Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. So Jesus responds to their citing of Psalm 118, he found a young donkey and sat on it. And I want you to put here in your blank, purpose or control. We're going to pause here and digress for a moment. John's gospel, one of the themes it is focused on is Jesus' sovereign timing of the crucifixion. Turn all the way back to chapter 2. I want to track briefly a thread through John's gospel. Jesus has been very concerned in John's gospel about getting the timing right. There's a phrase that shows up again and again in John's gospel, his hour or his time. And so you remember the... The, the event where Jesus' mother comes to him and tells him they've ran out of wine at that wedding. What does Jesus say to her? In John chapter 2, verse 3 and 4, when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. And yet, strangely enough, he fulfills her unspoken request. He does create wine, but remember, he does it so that no one else knows. Even the head waiter is confused. In other words, he does the miracle. He supplies what's needed. But he does it in a way that doesn't draw attention to himself. In fact, we're told his disciples saw, and they beheld his glory, and they believed. But this miracle does not bring much attention to him. And then you turn to chapter 4, the discussion he has with the Samaritan woman. John chapter 4, 21 to 23, Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem we worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming, 
and it's now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. Notice that again, that this hour. We can skip over. Jesus references it again in chapter 5. Turn to chapter 7. In chapter 7, we have another event similar to what we saw in chapter 2. In 2, a family member, Mary's mother, urges him to do something. And he, chast- he gently, I think, rebuffs her. Here, his brothers urge him to do something. Look in verse 2. Now the feast of booths was at hand. So his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see your works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. Jesus, go public. Have your messianic coming out party where you're just publicly there. Go up publicly to the feast. All the men of Israel will be there. You don't have to hide around in Galilee anymore. Jesus said to them, verse 6, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about its works that are evil. You go up to the feast. I'm not going up to the feast, for my time has not yet fully come. And then he goes up to the feast, except he doesn't go up. And the way I take this, he doesn't, he's not going up the way they've proposed. He goes up secretly, and he does some sort of guerrilla preaching. Where he just sort of shows up in the, in, in the temple and starts teaching. He doesn't do what they've urged him to do because it's not his time yet. The implication, if I draw that much attention to myself, it's going to conflict with my hour, my time. Or look in chapter 7, a little further, in verse 30. After one of Jesus' sort of guerrilla preaching incidents, they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him. Why? Because his hour had not yet come. Again, in chapter 8, verse 20, these words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him. Why? Because his hour had not yet come. So do you see Jesus' focus on, concern for getting the timing right? No, I'm not going to do a big public miracle at this wedding. It's not my hour yet. No, I'm not going to go up in a big entourage with pomp and splendor to the Feast of Booths. My time has not yet come. They can't lay hands on him. Why? His hour is not yet here. And now Jesus lets all the stops out in chapter 12. Why? We'll just look a little past our text where we ended. We ended in chapter 12, verse 19. Just pick it up in 20. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. These came to Philip, who was from, from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Jesus went and told Andrew, and Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus, and Jesus answered them, the hour has come. Turn to chapter 17, or turn to 13. The night of the Last Supper. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come. And then finally, go to chapter 17. How does Jesus begin his high priestly prayer in the garden? Chapter 17, verse 1, when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son. Your son may glorify you. So back in chapter 12, here's here's what I want you to understand. Jesus' brothers in chapter 7 had already urged him to do something similar. Go public. Grab the spotlight. Let everyone see you. No one does what you're doing in secret, Jesus. His response back then, it's not time. 
Even if you turn back to chapter 6, this will tie in briefly to John 6. After the uh, feeding of the 5,000, in John chapter 6, look at verses 14 and 15. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. Perceiving that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. He's not withdrawing here. That's, that's the point I want you to get. He's leaning into this. What's about to happen, on the one hand, comes spontaneously from the people, but rather than resisting it, going and hiding, Jesus intentionally fulfills prophecy. They're going to know Zechariah 9. He, he intentionally grabs or gets a hold of this young donkey. And so in a book that sees Jesus of avoiding unnecessary attention, controlling, att- attentive to the timing, here he's open to it. He doesn't resist it. And so I want you to see the control of our Savior. I want you to understand that he's coming willing to die. He knows what he's doing. Now is the hour He's avoided the timing up to this point to get things just right here. He leans into it, and he accepts their laud and praise, and he does something that he knows they're going to understand. They're going to make the connections with Zechariah. They may not understand the full import, but they're going to get it. Jesus is a willing king of Israel. Jesus is a willing sacrifice. Jesus is in control. He has purpose. That's what I want you to understand. He, he found a young donkey and sat on it. He, he's agreeing to this. Now the hour is here. Now it is time. And Jesus enters Jerusalem for the Passover feast. Another great irony, right? He's coming in. They're heralding him as king. He's coming for the Passover, except he is the Passover, is he not? Our Passover lamb 1 Corinthians 5, is entering Jerusalem. They don't understand. They don't get it. So that's what Jesus does. So again, the action is really pretty straightforward. We get the context, big crowds drawn because of Lazarus, John because of Jesus, John because of the, um, the feast. Then we have the, uh, the, the growing conspiracy, the chief priests determining where to kill Jesus, where to kill Lazarus. The people spontaneously come out to meet him with palm branches. They, they cite Psalm 118. Jesus responds, not by going and hiding, not by telling them to stop, but rather leaning into it. And he found a young donkey and sat on it. So now I think we got, it's time to look at those two passages because understanding this event is going to be tied up in understanding these two passages. So please keep your finger here. We'll come back. But turn to Psalm 118, please. Turn to Psalm 118. On a previous Palm Sunday, we studied Psalm 118 at length, so I will just uh, move quickly here. Psalm 118 is an antithenal psalm. There's call and response, if you don't know what that word means. You see that um, just in the first verse, right? Oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good, presumably a choir master or the leader of the song crawling out, and then the response from the people, for his steadfast love endures for evil forever. Good grief. (laughs) Revaco. For his steadfast love endures forever. Let Israel say, his steadfast love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say, his steadfast love endures. You get the idea. 
There's call and response. In the midst of this call and response, starting in verse 5, we have an individual testimony. I, someone speaking. And the individual who's speaking is some sort of Davidic king, some, some leader or general of an army. Right? And he testifies to a great deliverance from the Lord, a great victory. Out of my distress, I called on the Lord. The Lord answered me and set me free. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is on my side as my helper. I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. All the nations surrounded me. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me, surrounded me on every side. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me like bees. They went up like a fire among thorns. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. I was pushed hard so that I was falling, but the Lord helped me. The Lord is my strength and my song. He's become my salvation. Glad songs of salvation are in the tents of the righteous. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. The right hand of the Lord exalts. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. So we have this first-person testimony of some difficult, tight military conflict. And amazingly, because of the Lord's right hand, he triumphs. There's been this victory. And now we're going to see this song is taking place in movement. It's going somewhere. It's going to the temple. This is a song that's being sung on the way to somewhere. So let's keep going. I shall not die, but I shall live and recount the deeds of the Lord. The Lord has disciplined me severely, but he has not given me over to death. Open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter through them. Give thanks to the Lord. Then you imagine the response. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you've answered me and have become my salvation. Then presumably the people responding, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It's marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. I think it's, in the first sense, it means something like your enemies didn't appraise you or size you up as very formidable, like a stone that builders would overlook, not fit for the structure. But now you have proven to become the cornerstone, far more formidable far more worthy than you were previously esteemed, he comes to the temple. The people from the temple greet him. And then we get, save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And this king or this general who comes is coming to do something. He's coming to offer sacrifice. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God. He has made his light to shine upon us. Bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. You are my God. I will give thanks to you. You are my God. I will extol you. I will give thanks to the Lord for he is good. For his steadfast love endures forever. So what do we have? A conquering king comes to God's temple. The people certainly take this person as a king. They make that very clear. In the context of Psalm 118, any military leader would make sense, but uh, as David was a mighty man of war, I think it is natural enough to understand this to be some Davidic king. That's the way the people take it, absolutely. Right? In fact, they add on, not just blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. Right? They make it really clear. So Jesus is coming 
to Jerusalem for the Passover, where a sacrifice will be offered. And again, this is part of the irony. These people speak far better than they know. These people speak far, far better than they know. But in God's sovereign plan and purpose, out of their mouths comes this psalm, a king is coming to offer sacrifice. A king is coming who will triumph over sin and death, over the devil, over his enemies. He himself will be the sacrifice. They know none of this. They know none of this. In fact, as we saw in chapter 6, them wanting Jesus as king had a lot more to do with geopolitical salvation, right? I mean, who wouldn't go fight for a king who can feed you every day miraculously, and if you die in battle, raise you from the dead? And so when they're crying out, save us now, I think the salvation they're mostly looking for, and with a big crowd that's going to be mixed, it's going to be a mixed bag, but I think you'll see in a few minutes that this is not nearly as good as it may look. I think the salvation they want is salvation from oppression, from, from Rome. Make Israel great again, crowd. Okay. But that's what they're looking for, national prominence, national restoration. These aren't necessarily bad things. I'm not trying to pick on that. What I'm saying is they got their sights too low. Most of them. Not all of them, but most of them. They're looking for... Uh, This type of victorious king. They want a king who triumphs. They want a king who defeats his enemies. They want a king who can throw off Rome, establish the kingdom, give Israel its exalted place of prominence. But they speak far, far better than they know. Because even though what they're looking for, what they mean by what they're saying, in most instances, isn't fully accurate, we know from our vantage point they're spot on. They're absolutely spot on. Many of you have already noticed that verse, what the stone which the builders rejected gets quoted again in the New Testament. Peter cites it. So that's the first scripture, Psalm 118, verses 25 to 26. Next, let's go to Zechariah. If you're not sure where Zechariah is, if you go to Matthew and turn just a few pages to the left, you'll be in Zechariah. Malachi is in between, but he's very brief. Zechariah. Chapter 9. Now, this is, again, another book that we studied at length about six years ago, five, six years ago. And so I'll move somewhat quickly here again. Chapter 9 of Zechariah begins um, one of the last two sections of the book. The book can be divided into three parts. Um, The night visions, one question with four answers, and then these two oracles or burdens of the Lord. The two oracles or burdens of the Lord, one in chapter 9, one in chapter 12. The first burden or oracle of the word of the Lord is against Israel's enemies, against the nations around them. It's focused on the surrounding nations and peoples. And it describes and speaks of a a king or some power coming that will devastate the surrounding nations and peoples. We learn eventually that this is going to be a Greek king or ruler. Look at verse 13. I will stir up your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece, and wield you like a warrior's sword. And this appears to be a depiction or a description of Alexander the Great coming down along the Mediterranean. And amazingly, just as predicted, he leaves Jerusalem alone. 
He manages to take Tyre and Sidon, which even Nebuchadnezzar over 13 years couldn't take. Alexander the Great takes it. And he goes back up north again to fight some more. And so this burden or this oracle of the Lord announces this judgment. You can see all the different places to be judged just as you work through it. But in the midst of this, another proclamation is made. A different king will also come. Look at verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And so in the midst of this prediction of Alexander the Great coming down, destroying Laying to waste Ashdod, Philistia, Gaza, Ekron, Tyre, Sidon, Hamath, and yet leaving Jerusalem and Israel alone, which is exactly what happened. Here's this messianic prophecy about an even greater king, but this is a meek and mild, humble king, not on a war horse, but on a donkey. So, significance here a humble king rides to his people. Humble king. Rides to his people. So turn, turn back to John 12. And I think what Jesus is doing here is offering some corrective to the expectations of the people. I think we'll see that they, they're looking for a geopolitical savior. They're looking for a king who's going to be victorious over physical enemies. And so Jesus intentionally fulfills a messianic prophecy highlighting not his battle prowess, not his fierce might, but his meekness, his humility. This is the type of king I am, in other words. There's, I think, a gentle, Jesus corrects their expectations. Jesus corrects their expectations. Turn to uh, chapter 18, where Jesus clarifies the same point with Pontius Pilate. John 18, read verse 33 to verse 38. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Do you see how this title, this question, is is what is going to get him caught up? Because Jesus' enemies are going to say, He's raised himself up in opposition to Caesar. He's opposing Caesar. Do something. So Pilate says to him, are you indeed the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, do you say this on your own accord or did the others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. I am no immediate competitor To Caesar and his throne. Not in that sense. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from this world. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king? Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? Postmodernity is nothing new. What is truth? Truth 
incarnate is standing in front of him. What is truth? So Jesus clarifies his kingship to Pilate. Yes, in one sense, I absolutely am a king. But I'm, I'm, no, I'm not starting a revolt. I'm not putting together a militia. I'm not going to go storm Rome. That's, that's not what my kingdom and ruler are about right now. And I think Jesus is doing something similar here for those who have eyes to see. So now let's quickly look at the responses. Again, the people come out. They cite Psalm 118. We want, we think you might be that glorious, conquering, victorious king who triumphs in battles. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even king of Israel. Jesus' response, I'm a king all right, but I'm a different type of king right now. I'm a humble, meek, mild, donkey-riding king. And then John gives us four responses. Four responses. Verse 16, his disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. So again, notice how John is drawing the attention to the fulfillment of Scripture. That's really the significance. These things have been written about him and they've been done to him. But right off the bat, they did not understand. Three years they've been with Jesus. They don't have a clue what's going on. They don't get the significance. I mean, I'm sure they get their citing, Psalm 118. And I'm sure they made some connections to, doesn't Zechariah say something about, but they, it doesn't come together. They don't get it. They don't get it. Jesus will eventually breathe on them, give them the spirit, and they will begin to understand. They will begin to understand. Jesus in, in John thirteen seven, what I'm doing now you do not understand, but afterwards you will understand. And then in John twenty, twenty one to twenty two, Jesus appears to them and says, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I'm sending you. When he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is the one that Jesus in the upper room on that night told them would bring to their remembrance all that had been said, and he would testify to what he had done. What Jesus had done. He would not testify in his own accord, but he would testify to Jesus. So later, when the disciples received the Holy Spirit, then they understand. Right off the bat, one response, they don't understand. And I'm sure there are some, when they see Christians making a big deal out of this, they don't understand either. What, I don't get it. What's the big deal? A guy on a donkey, people with palm branches. Okay. They don't understand. That's one response. Second, it's the response of the crowd. The response of the crowd. Your blanks here. Sign seeking with nationalistic hopes. It's probably a big word to try to put in that little blank. Maybe you can just make it national. Sign seeking with national hopes. Now, I want you to look a little further into chapter 12 to show you why I think most of the people in this crowd miss it. They don't get it. Some might. Some, like Nathaniel, might understand Jesus as the king of Israel in the proper sense, in the right sense. But really, not much else happens in John, in John 12, prior to the end of the chapter. We, we, we've gone through, you've even seen um, down to verse 23, Jesus makes one last address. And then we read uh, verse 32. Well, just, let's start in verse 27. We'll see the hour get referenced again. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. 
But for this purpose I've come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. The crowd stood there and heard it and said that it had thundered. Others said an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, we have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the son of man must be lifted up? Once they start realizing this king might not be around, might not triumph in the way they're expecting. They, death throws them up. Whoa, 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 whoa. The Christ is supposed to endure forever. Jesus said to them, this light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. This is the end of Jesus' public ministry. The rest of the book will be Jesus' ministry to the twelve in the upper room, then the events of the crucifixion and resurrection. His public ministry is done. Look at verse 37. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. So that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart. Lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. So the summary, even though you just had this crowd heralding him with palm branches, rejoicing, save now, Hosanna. Enough of them are off base that John can summarize and say, yeah, they didn't believe. So there, there may be people in this crowd. And maybe some of these people are on their way. Who knows where they end up? But where they're at right here, by and large, isn't where they need to be. Which is why I believe the emphasis on their sign-seeking. They want to see Lazarus. They heard something happened. Their emphasis on their nationalistic hopes, the way they get sh- shaken up when Jesus suggests he might, something might happen to them. So that'll always happen. There'll always be people who find something exciting about Jesus. Something of interest. Something worth paying attention about. But they don't believe. They're not disciples. They don't worship. Then we move to the uh, the Pharisees. John highlights them. So so here you see his mention of the the crowd in verse 17, back in chapter 12. The crowd had had been with him. When he called Lazarus out of the tomb, raised him from the dead, continued to bear witness, the reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they'd heard that he had done this sign. And the linking, even though he'd done so many signs among them, they did not believe. Verse 19, so the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. And they are dismayed at his popularity. The Pharisees dismayed his popularity and hatred against him. So I've mentioned there are four responses, and you may say, I only see three here. 
Well, because he names the disciples in verse 16, in verse 17, the crowd, and verse 19, the Pharisees. So who's the fourth? Well, the fourth audience is, of course, those who John expects to be reading his gospel. He's telling this account to somebody. And clearly, John expects those who hear his report and read his word to get a greater significance. He's already made these narrative asides. Oh, the disciples didn't understand now, but later they would. Who's he talking to? He's talking to us. And he's expecting we are putting it together. He's expecting we are seeing the deep irony. He's expecting that we understand that even as the people cry, save us, probably thinking about Rome. Oh, this king is coming to save them indeed. And even as they cry out, blessed is you who comes in the name of the Lord. (laughs) That's who this is. And he's come to Jerusalem to offer a sacrifice of himself. They say he's the king of Israel. He truly is. Yes, we can put it together. We can see for what it truly is. As our Lord embraces the cross, his hour, he does not run from it. He willingly lays down his life. No one takes it from him. And so the point D here, the readers, the readers. And that response, turn, turn to John 20. We'll close here and I'm going to sing our closing song. John tells us why he's written. Not all books in the Bible have thesis statements, purpose statements. But when they do, man, it's helpful. And, and John gives us one here in chapter 20. Verse 30 and 31. Why'd you write this down, John? Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So the reader's response should be faith, belief, wonder, awe, worship, delight. That's, that's the fourth response. It should be our response. Hopefully it is your response. That you are trusting in Christ to be your Savior, your King, your sacrifice. And that you too can pronounce these biblical truths in a way more meaningful more rightly understood than these crowds, than even the disciples at this point. So I'm going to ask Carol to come up. I'll close in a word of prayer, and we'll sing, Crown Him with Many Crowns. Lord God, we marvel at how you challenge our expectations. You are the king, yet you are meek and mild. You come not to destroy, but to Give your life a ransom for many. And in so doing, destroy death and the devil. You challenged your people's expectations then, even as you do now. And so, Lord, I pray that we would come to you truly as we ought, not for what we can get out of you, not for material blessings, not as so many in the crowds came, but that we would come as those who understand the salvation we need first and foremost is from our own guilt of sin, from our own corrupt deeds, from our own wickedness, and that we look to a promise of a kingdom and a king 
Not of this world. The city that we are citizens to is a heavenly Jerusalem. That we are not at home here, but we are sojourners. Lord, help us to cherish and honor Christ in our hearts, to celebrate his kingship and his rule, and to submit as his subjects to it in our lives. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.